Welcome to HealthSystemCIO.com's interview with Chuck Christian, Chime Board of Trustees Chair. In this interview, Christian talks about Chime's motivation for creating a new vision statement, how he believes the CIO role will continue to evolve, and the importance of knowing how to actively listen. One of the things I uh, wanted to talk about was uh, the new vision statement for Chime. Yeah. Um, so I guess first of all, what what was the motivation for uh, for changing it? Well, I mean, we wanted to make sure that you know the vision statement we had had been been around for a, a while. Mm -hmm. The organization is changing because healthcare is changing, and right. so our role uh, in order to uh, provide the services we need to the membership, we have to change. And we just felt like that we want, we needed to have a little bit different vision statement that, that spoke a little bit more about what we're currently doing. Right. Uh, you know, with the, you know, the education, not only for the CIOs, but uh, uh, just uh, the industry in general, because we, we have such a, a bigger part in advocacy now than we ever had before. I was on the board back in uh, 2002 and um, you know our role in advocacy was very very small at that point in time and over the last you know several years we've ramped it up a little bit and we found that it's, it's been very helpful uh, to the folks in Washington DC to you know to listen to the people who's actually having to implement the regulations that are pouring out of, out off the hill um, and I, I, we found that they're you know very much willing to listen. So we wanted to craft a vision statement and a mission statement that is, you know, far more fitting to what, you know, the organization really is. And, you know, if you look back a couple of years ago, this organization is very much different than, uh, than it was before. Yeah. So, we're still focused on our membership. Uh, we'll never take our focus off of membership. I'm the one that waves that flag a lot because we are a membership organization. It's like I said yesterday morning, everything we do uh, we always double, you know, check against that list of, you know, is this is this something that uh, our members are going to be benefit from, and uh, you know what, what, you know what's the next thing that we're going to be looking at and worried about, and with this next iteration iteration of either regulatory or reimbursement rules that are going to be coming out. Yeah, I, I can imagine it's that tough to get pretty good, honest feedback from the members if if either they're you know not getting enough of something or. Yeah. The really interesting thing is that you know we have over 1,700 members, but it's like everything else. You're going to have a, a, a smaller percentage. You know, the, uh, you know, trying to get everybody to participate, it's not going to happen because um, some people join the organization because they want access to the information, to that stream of consciousness that's coming out from those. Then you're going to have that group that are the thought leaders that are going to be willing to. Uh, offer an opinion even when it's not asked for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that there's a variety, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you could bell curve or, you know, the membership interaction and stuff uh, with that. Yeah. But uh, I think that, you know, for the most part, our, you know, I've gotten emails from, uh, you know, some folks uh, why I'm here about what they like, what they don't like, and uh, I have some yeah. uh, meaningful conversations in the hallway. Yeah. And so they're very, um, willing to offer an opinion. Well, the other, the other nice thing is many of us, you know, have been in the organization from the very beginning and, yeah. you know, these are friendships we've had for years and so friends tell friends things that they just, you know, they won't tell anybody else and so, yeah. and, you know, we take it in confidence and just go on, so. Yeah. What about kind of the overall um, mood of, uh, of the show? Is there any 
kind of themes that you really see coming up a lot, or it seems like there, there's kind of a good bit of optimism, which is nice. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I think guess that, it's all relative. Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, you know the O and CIO sometimes I think has to be you know B for optimism because. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If if you're not optimistic, then you know there's no way that you can look into the future where we have to look and see. You know, it's like Wayne Gretzky. You know, we're not trying to skate where the puck is. We're going to try to go where the puck's going to be. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, the regular regulators are moving the goal, and so we have to figure out where that's going to be so we can skate to that. Sometimes we guess well, sometimes we don't. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I'd like to say, you know, I use the word guess, but it's an informed, it, it's a, it's an informed opinion, yeah. and. Uh, it's not that we're seeing a lot at the end of the tunnel, is that we, many of us in the industry have, have advocated for the use of health information technology to have a very positive impact upon you know, patient care and the delivery of care and the healthcare delivery system as a whole. Yeah. And I think that now we're seeing that, you know, we're being as professionals, we're not just talking about what the next network is gonna look like or if we need wireless and that kind of stuff. We're in, in, the, in the room, in the boardroom, talking about business you know how do we how do we leverage the technology to have a positive impact upon the the organization how do we help it do you know how do we help it meet the demands of these new reimbursement models like ACOs or other at-risk programs and stuff and then yeah. the other thing is how do we use the data that we're collecting these EMRs that we've spent so much time and money into to actually do the analysis on to have, so we can have an impact upon population health and other things are coming down the pike and I think that as we continue to go through this iterative process we're going to learn more about how we can engage the patients yeah. uh, at another level uh, and get them more involved in their care, provide the tools that they they need um, and whether they, you know, it's kind of like I'm going to tell you you need this too and you may not know you need it, but here's how it's going to help you, yeah. particularly if you have COPD or you have congestive failure, if you have a uh, diabetes or some of the chronic malady that you know you're not in this alone I can you know with mobile apps and that kind of stuff I can put your caregivers you know as far away as the palm of your hand yeah and so and the other thing with some of the new remote monitoring technologies and stuff it's not about the technology is how do we create those connections and relationships to help them better manage what you know what they're going through at that point in time yeah yeah, it's really interesting kind of just seeing that, that next, the next wave. These conferences like this uh, allow us to, you know, we're, we're doing track sessions right now uh, yeah. and did track sessions yesterday, then we'll do some repeats. Uh, we're, we have the, uh, the CPI Institute that we have some best practices where we're, we're able to put uh, educational material out that uh, of real honest to goodness uh, real world, world world white papers and studies that people in their organizations along with their vendors have been have been successful yeah and so getting that out there and see if we can't share that knowledge of what they've done because you know if you go back and look at the Baldrige criteria you know uh, that's a good southern term criteria <laughs> uh, is that you know one of the things that all the Baldrige examiners will you know if you're going through that Baldrige journey is one of the things they do tell you is still shamelessly if you find somebody that has a great best practice, take it yeah. and you know uh, and use it. There's no reason for us to keep paving the same roads in different counties that others have done and done it well. Yeah. Let's learn from what they've done, and you know we already have uh, 
a, a great lag in medicine from the time a you know good medi medical evidence occurs. It takes 17 years for that to actually wind up in the physician's office. Well, guess what? Mm -hmm. It's just too long. We, yeah. we can't wait that long. The volume of medical knowledge is growing at such a pace. I, I read a stat that if a physician read uh, a peer-reviewed article for a night, that in about three months he'd be 400 years behind. <laughs> and so you, you really, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, you really can't, you know, you can't keep up the way that we used to along when I started uh, in healthcare, you know, 40 something years ago, that's how you did it. Yeah. Uh, and, but there are, you know, some really good tools and techniques that are coming out there that help, you know, I'm not suggesting that we, you know, we, we replace physicians, but we augment their mm -hmm. ability to sure. uh, treat their patients. You know, the, the whole thing with genomics and protonomics and those type of things is that, I think we all know now, based upon the readings and the publications, is that if you have uh, you know, prostate cancer, you have it, it may not be the same kind, yeah. or you know, genetically that somebody else had, and so the treatment, and that's where, we, where a lot of the treatments in oncology is predicated upon statistics, is yeah. that here's the, the probability this treatment is going to be good for you. Well, let's see if we can't do better than that. Let's come up with the tools and the techniques to say, okay, based upon your genome, yeah. we other people that have genomes like you do better with this treatment than that. So for me, that increases my probability of a successful treatment. Yeah. So uh, that's the things we need to do. But uh, you know, to, to sequence everybody's genes, it, it's expensive and man, it's a massive data. I mean, yeah. I, I uh, was talking to a, a gentleman at a, research hospital and uh, he and, and they were trying to do a better job with security and they were you know moving things over and so they had one researcher that had had four pentabytes of uh, genomic data that he needed stored yeah. safely well and i guess he just assumed that the you know the hospital was just going to take it and drop it in their new data center yeah well i mean Storing that much data is not cheap. It yeah. has to be backed up. It has to be recoverable, and so it adds to the cost of that. So, yeah. I think that you know the the volume of data that we're going to generate over time is going to get really, really much, much larger than it truly is. But the yeah. other issue is, how do we address that? How do we deal with it? Mm -hmm. uh, we, at, at, you know, I work for the Indian Health Information Exchange now, and we have uh, about 30 years of, of clinical data in our warehouse that, has, that we've been building over this yeah. time because it came out of research and uh, came out of the Reagan Street Institute and we, it, now it's moved over to us and we've actually commercialized it. So, you know, it's not that they had bad code, it's just, but when you're writing code to do research and that kind of stuff, you're not as careful with it yeah. as if you would if you were going to commercialize it. So what we've done is we've hardened the code. Um, and it's, it's and we're servicing the same population we always have, but it's a little different. It, uh, uh, if you test it, it doesn't break because mm -hmm. uh, we want it there all the time. But one of the things the physicians will tell us that we've talked talk to is that it's not enough to present them with a mass of data over a course of a lifetime of a patient. Uh, you know, it's they need to they need to have that in back in their you know quiver. But they're looking more for errors of the patients in the emergency room. And I, I'll use this example is if they're in an emergency room and they've walked in the door because they're having chest pain, mm -hmm. you really don't care they had a broken leg three years ago. Right. You're wanting to know what other 
you know, related symptomology have they had? Have they had uh, an echo done? Have they had, uh, you know, what was their last injection fraction? What medications related to cardiac are they doing? You know, it, are they diabetic? And those type of things. And so being able to reach in and get that data and bring it to them up front, yes. so it percolates to the top of the pile, is, is going to be really important because they just truly don't have time to wade through that and go hunt this stuff you yeah. know, because that last echo may have been three years ago. Well, they don't have time to wade through the record and go look, in, you know, look at the, you know, you would think, so well, it's just as easy as going looking at cardiology, echo studies, and there you go. Well, that's not really how the data is always stored. It could yeah. be under imaging or, you know, it depends on which facility you had it in because echoes in some areas are in cardiology, other areas are in imaging, or they may be in cardiovascular, so it's named differently. So yeah. we have to normalize that data and put it out there. Just a little little task. Just a little <laughs> thing, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, the last thing I wanted to touch on a little bit was that I definitely see some of the emphasis on uh, the CIO role and how that's evolving. and. That's always an interesting thing to see that. And um, one of the, the sessions yesterday kind of focused on the need for CIOs to really be collaborating with, with other members of the C-suite team. And uh, I, I know that that's not a new message, but something that seems right. to be even more yeah. important now. Well, the other thing too is, you know, you know I think that's, you know, you know, we, that's the evolution of CHIME and the evolution of the, of the CIO. I mean, one of the things we're doing in the lead forms is the you know, CIO 3.0. Mm -hmm. We started out with CIO, you know, and you know, back in the you know, late to middle 90s advocating for the role of the CIO within the organization because yeah. you know, the, you know, the role of the CIO is mostly to keep the bits and bytes flowing through the network. Right. You know, 2.0 was get yourself out of the out of the IT shop, mm -hmm. elevate yourself as a business person. 3.0 even uh, you know says that more because running the service and stuff, as far as I'm concerned, is not a core competency that the, the CIO has to have. He needs to have the management skills and you know the wherewithal and the knowledge to understand the business implications of that and you know, making sure that they're backed up and they're secure and, and those type of things. But he, he or she has staff to do that that are highly competent and they very well should have more skills than the CIO in, that, in those technical areas. That's what yeah. they do. But the CIO should be more of that business partner working with the other operational pieces in the organization, working with the CNO and the CMO and the CMIO on this thing called clinical transformation is you know how do we apply the technology uh, to improve care without you know creating an undue data entry burden on the the physicians or the nursing staff how, how do we do that so we're you know these are you know process re-engineering type of things it's not implementing software uh, they you have pmos and people who are very good they're credentialed in project management but they need to know enough about uh, you know, oversight and how to manage you know, those processes and understand what the implications financially are of the organization. Yeah. They need to be working with the CFO is, you know, this is how much this is going to cost, so help me figure out 
you know, in the value that we bring back to the organization, how do we make these things pay for themselves or actually maybe even if we're lucky, you know, cut enough costs that we actually add to the bottom line rather than right. just continue to spend money because these things are not cheap and, yeah. you know, the acquisition cost on the technology is only the tip of the iceberg because then you have to buy it again over the course of the next five or six years. Right. Uh, so the other place they need to be, and, and when we did boot camp, you know, I asked for a show of hands how many of the folks in the audience, now many of these were, were sitting CIOs, others are aspirational uh, to be CIOs. Um, I asked them, so how often do you get out of your office and go into your physician practices that I know every one of your organizations are purchasing? Yeah. It was a few. And I said, well, I will tell you from own personal experience, get yourself up, get out in their practices. And I said, make sure three people see you when you walk in the door, the business practice manager, the physician's nurse and the doc. Hmm. And I said, if you build a relationship with a business practice manager, she will make sure you see the other two. She will make sure they know you're there. And right. I said, if, if you don't believe that just your presence in their practice is powerful, go try it. Yeah. Because, you know, they do not uh, typically see someone from the executive team in their practice. And, you know, just you know, not with any, no agenda whatsoever, just I want to come over and see how things are going, how can I help you, you know, we've got a couple of things that we may, you know, at some point in time I want to sit down and talk about, yeah. the Hoover's running the practice will have more time to have that conversation with the doc or the nurse, unless they're down, you know, for whatever reason, it's their afternoon to do charts or whatever. Yeah. And so building those relationships has a, has an extreme, is an extremely powerful thing because once you can build that rapport with those folks and, and, they, and you're a known entity to them, you're just not this person that they see at the boardrooms or happen to run across in the physician's lounge. Yeah. If they know who you are and they've had some time to have conversation with you, then uh, the really nice thing is they will bring issues to you and help you fix things. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's where the collaboration comes in is how do we do this together? And you know, I don't think that just because we may have a CMIO in the building, it's not that we would say, okay, we'll delegate this authority to you and yeah. then I'll go do something else. I, I don't think that's the way. It, there's a partnership that has to be created to get stuff accomplished. And, to, you know, to, and a lot of CIOs, uh, they, they don't necessarily have a, a lens uh, and a body of experience to understand when somebody's talking to them, what do they mean? Right. Uh, and so it takes a little while to uh, learn how to actively listen, uh, to listen you know, carefully about what they're saying, what they're not saying, uh, rather than trying to uh, formulate a response. Um, and then, yeah. you know, there is, there's techniques that you, we as CIOs really need to, to learn in order to actively listen to, I don't care if somebody's mad, actively listen. Yeah. Unless they're, you know, going to ball up their fist and hit you, which they won't, is that you just need, you need to actively listen to what they're telling you because I've learned over the course of years, even very angry physicians because something has happened uh, that they believe that has created liability for them or impacted their workflows, that if, if you listen very carefully, they'll give you the answer. Somewhere in that stream of consciousness that is emanating from their, their mouth is they're going to give you the answer. What you have to do is you have to be smart enough to listen for it and, and not get 
not take what they're saying personally, even though they may be personal, is right. listen to what they're saying. I had, I had two physicians that I dealt with. Uh, one was an ER physician, the other one was a cardiologist. And I always felt like, you know, it's like going in the movie when the movie's already started. That conversation started with them in their head 45 minutes ago yeah. until I showed up. And then it was, you know, the, the, the dam busted and, and I, I, I got it. And so um, I, and I, I've created two really good friends because I just sit and listen to them. Yeah. And I've said, to them, okay, here's what I hear you say. Uh, here and here's what I hear you think you you think that we can do to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. And they started looking for and heard that I was willing to one listen to them. Didn't always agree. Yeah. Uh, but I one of them, uh, the ER physician, became a, a good enough friend that we we agreed that we could say anything to each other we wanted to, good, bad, indifferent. And when we when we got up, we were still friends. Yeah. And it's it's an extremely powerful thing to not have to be guarded. Uh, you know, in what you say, because you know that politically, the other one doesn't care. Uh, but you know, it, you know, if we get into a situation uh, that we're going to have each other's back, that we're going to take it. So building those relationships, I think, is absolutely key. The other thing is, you know, getting out into you know just uh, what I call MBWA, which is management by wandering around, is get out into the organizations and. Uh, you know, get on the nursing units, go to the OR, go to the ER. I used to go down when I was at Good Samaritan and I'd work shifts in the emergency room. And that was, you know, I'm an old x-ray tech, so, you know, I like the clinical setting. You can't make me sick and you know, I'm not squeamish. So, but also understand that that's where not only good quality care takes place, but the compassion for the person also occurs. Right, yeah. And so we have a tendency sometimes to forget in healthcare that this disease or this malady actually has a person attached right. to it. And so right. I think we have to be reminded that, you know, healthcare is not about, you know, fixing people when they're broken. It's about taking care of them as a whole. And I think we need to be reminded of that. So, I, and the fact that CIOs, you know, kind of live in the, this world of technology, you know, the more of an aspect of a business leader that they can take on, mm -hmm. the more valuable they're going to be to their organization and to themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like what you said about the physicians. I remember talking to a CIO pretty recently, David Bensma, and he was saying that because he was an MD coming in, he didn't think it was going to be, the, I think he underestimated what it would be like, and the physicians just really well, were very, very, very honest. Yeah, but you know, he had said too that after he listened to them, things started to change. A little bit of trust at a time was built, yeah. but. Well, I had one physician in Columbus. Uh, Glenn Fussell, longtime physician, had a great practice. Uh, we, uh, I wound up having to be the uh, CPOE police because I, I just, mm -hmm. you do it. And so I had to, you know, tell the physicians that, you know, and the medical st uh, executive team had, the medical staff had put a new policy in place. If you're not at this level, you're going to lose your privileges at this hospital. Well. Um, he found some uh, technical issues with the, the policy. Excuse me, and it was put in place before I got there. And so I heard that uh, through the grapevine that Glenn was going, he had put together a PowerPoint presentation to illustrate all the errors in, in that judgment. And uh, rather than focusing upon the medical staff exec committee, he focused upon me because I was the policeman. So I heard right. about it. So I went down one day at lunch and uh, sat down with him. I said, Glenn, I understand that, you know, you found some things that, we, that, that you need to, to share. 
about the policy. And I said, keep in mind, I didn't write it. Uh, your peers did, but I'd like to know what these are. So he pulled out his iPad, threw his presentation up, and we walked through every point. And I, I saw exactly what he was talking about. From a physician standpoint, from that, that side of the street, yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, yeah. it, was, it, it was written in a way that it was very, could be very punitive. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I'll tell you what let's do. I said, if you want to bring this up at the uh, med exec, which is going to meet this evening, yeah. I said, I'll support you in uh, your you know, request. Med exec came, never mentioned it. Hmm. He was ready. He was yeah. loaded. He never mentioned it. And because I asked him, I said, Glenn, I thought we were going to talk about it. He says, no. Nah. He says, I've already talked to the chair. We'll fix it. Hmm. And so, you know, it's being, I guess, being present and willing to walk into the storm. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to do that and you know sometimes you know it's going to be like a hurricane you're going to have all the all the limbs off your tree ripped off but you know they grow back and you just go on yeah. but uh, I think in doing that you build a, a level of respect with the physicians that one you're just not a stuffed shirt that's you know just about implementing technology and forcing everybody to do it but you're truly interested in what the impact's going to be on how they get work done and how well they take care of their patients. Mm. So, good. good stuff. Thanks. All right.